Um, Tanika, my wife and I um, have, have found being a part of Rev um, kind of some of the things that God's spoken and some of the things that we've seen. Um, so Tanika and I arrived in London in 2006 straight after we got married. Um, it, we started uh, meeting in Stefan Davina's front room um, and we were there, um, we would meet midweeks to pray um, and then every other Sunday we would go out and we would visit different churches um, around London and the idea was to get a feel of what God was doing in London and to get a feel of what God was calling us to as a church. Um, and so during this time, um, when we were in Stefan Davina's front room, um, God spoke prophetically to us um, on several occasions. And one, one resulted with Steph standing on Camden Lock, banging a stick on the ground. Um, effectively, it was a prophetic statement of God going before us like Moses in the Red Sea. When Moses stretched out his staff and the Red Sea parted before him and God went before them. And so, so there was quite a lot going on at this time. It was an exciting time. Um, we had a guy called Julian Adams who came. Um, some of you might know him. He has quite a, a, a powerful prophetic ministry. Um, and he said that we would be an unlikely army. Um, he said that we would be like Gideon's 300 who marched into battle fearlessly. Um, with that and other kind of prophecies behind us, uh, we started looking for somewhere to meet and we moved to South Camden Community School um, and that was back in April 07 when we launched. Leading up to the launch, we, we managed to deliver uh, invitations to, to, well, pretty much every single house that we could get to um, in the two boroughs. That was literally thousands of invitations that went out across kind of Camden and Islington um, in the north central area. Um, from there, we started meeting um, in April 07, as I said. Uh, and then during that time, uh, we, we were there for a while. And then eventually, we moved um, in October 09 to this venue, where we are now. Um, during that time, God spoke to us about planting um, the second congregation, starting another service. Um, and kind of, you know, God was leading us in that direction. Um, and so we started the evening service, um, which many of you may have been to. Um, but it's fantastic. Um, and we just heard God speak. Um, it was effectively a service that would cater for people that wouldn't be up at this time on a Sunday morning. I mean, if you walk out in Camden Town, there's literally hundreds of people at kind of two, three o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, well, Sunday morning. Um, and so kind of the evening service really was, our heart was to reach those people. And so we provided provided an opportunity for them to hear the gospel. So during this time, God answered many, many prayers, prayers of um, jobs, prayers of housing, uh, different provisions. Uh, he provided um, direction for us. He spoke to us, even visa situations that opened up. Um, he was doing many, many things and answering loads of prayers. Um, God, God had spoken to us about this unlikely army of 300. And even Steph's, Steph's sister gave him the, the DVD of the film 300 of the Spartan army that stand against the Persians. And they fight together and they're fearless in battle. Um, and kind of with all of those prophecies behind us, all of those um, kind of God, God leading us, all of that kind of weight behind us, you know, we, we now find ourselves here. And there's many things that haven't been answered, but there are many things that will be answered. And we're believing... God for the fulfillment of those promises. Yes. Now you might say, well, why am I telling you about the history? Why am I just highlighting a few things? The reason is because although we're only four years old as a church, the reality is that we've got a history. We've got a history of God speaking to us, and we've got a history um, of God of God acting, of God stepping in and directing us. Some of you may have uh, 
seen something of the Pope's visit over these last couple of weeks um, as he trundles along in his Pope-mobile with all the cardinals kind of charging along behind him. Um, and, and, and I was watching it this week and actually w- w- what happens there is effectively the Pope goes out in front and literally thousands of people line the streets. And I just felt God speak to me um, through that. Not directly for the Pope, but um, I just felt God say that some people this morning will feel like you're watching this journey pass before you. Some of you are stood on the sidelines and you're watching this journey pass before you. And actually God's, God's inviting you, God's calling you to join the journey and partner with us. Um, some of you may already be on that journey. Some of you may already be in that entourage, that journey that's passing past the crowds. Um, and I just want to encourage you in that, that we're, that we're in this together that it's a journey that we're on as a church. And I just want to encourage you to continue fighting, continue moving forward, and together we'll see God move. Okay, so let's turn to Acts 16. Uh, That's where we're going to kind of base ourselves this morning. Um, Acts is found between the book of John, uh, the Gospel of John, and the book of Romans. Uh, It's in the New Testament. It was written by a guy called Luke. Um, Luke was a doctor and he's writing Acts as a factual account of what happened to the church after Jesus' ascension. When Jesus died, he rose again and then he was taken up to heaven and kind of the the beginnings of the church. And so Luke's writing a factual account of what happened. So let's start reading. Acts chapter 16, verse 1. There it is. It's behind me if you haven't got a Bible and you want to follow. Um, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was, he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place to pray. And we sat down and spoke to the, to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptised in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. You see, Paul um, has already visited these cities. Um, he's already been there once before in the previous chapters we, um, we read. And he's returning uh, to strengthen the churches um, and encourage them. Um, one, one key thing, a um, first point, is that Paul preached Jesus. Wherever he went, he preached 
Jesus. What was this message of Jesus? Well, we, we as people have sinned against God. Effectively, we've dishonoured him, either actively by attacking the truth or just by passively ignoring him and, and having no regard for him in our lives. We've dishonoured God. But you see, Jesus is God. Jesus stepped into history and he perfectly honoured God throughout his life. And ultimately, he honoured God when he died on that cross for our sin so that we could, so that we could be set free. So that the sin that was on us was now on Jesus. But you see, so often we can get to the point where we think that actually the gospel is all about me. Actually, Jesus died for me. Jesus saved me. Jesus cleansed me. Jesus, Jesus wanted me to be in relationship with him. And you see, that's a very dangerous position to be. Because if we do that, we forget the overarching theme. That actually the gospel is all about God's glory. The only reason we're Christians, the only reasons that Jesus came into the world to die for our sins was for his glory. Because he deserved to get glory from our life. And you see, often we can, we can miss that. Um, and when, when we understand that, we realise that actually anything we receive through Jesus' sacrifice is actually secondary to God being glorified. You see, it brings transformation, doesn't it? We were once dead, but now we're alive. It, it's for God's glory that we're now alive. And it's amazing. You might say, well, you know, that, 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 that's a bit strong. We are in relationship with God. And we are. We are. That's true. But you see, the, the, the problem is, if we miss the fact that it's all for God's glory and we think it's about us, what we're effectively doing is we're reducing the, the, the offence of our sin against God. And effectively, what we're saying is we're, we're just tarnished by sin. We just need to be cleaned up a little bit. But you see, we've got to understand that actually we were dead. There was nothing in us that could actually want, want to worship God, want to look to him. We were dead. Now, you may say, hold on a minute, that, that's going a little bit too far to say that, you know, I was worthless. Well, actually, you know, I'm not that bad. That's a bit harsh. I mean, you know, I was just lost. I was blind. I was, I was the prodigal son. Well, you might be, but what does the father say when the prodigal returns? He says, this my son was dead. This my son was dead and is alive again. He wasn't physically dead. He was just in another country. But the father says he's dead. He's as good as dead. We were dead. But God has transformed us and breathed life into us. Paul says in the, the letter to the Romans, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You see, in our sin, we are worthless. There is none of us that are good. Why all the negative talk? Aren't we talking about vision? Aren't we talking about Paul being on a journey and preaching the gospel? Isn't this supposed to be uplifting? Well, <laughs> it is. Why all the negative talk? Well, here's the point, you see. Paul understood that either way he died. Either he was dead in sin or he was dead to sin. You see, he was either dead in sin and that he, he, he died because of his sin and he deserved punishment because of his sin or he was dead to sin. That when Jesus died, we died to, to, to ourselves. We died to our own fleshy desires. We died to the sin that corrupts us and actually we died and we were raised again with Christ. We've had, we've had fantastic teaching over the last three weeks on the resurrection. Um, I would strongly recommend downloading them. They're very, very, just very powerful teaching on the resurrected life. 
resurrected life for us, resurrected life of Jesus, and resurrection in the future to come. I would heartily recommend it. You see, it's not all bad news, but right now we must understand that either way we're dead. We're either dead in sin if you're not a Christian, or you're dead to sin if you are a Christian. So what does this mean for Paul? Well, Paul very, knew very well his own sinfulness. Um, he, he himself, even when there was a Christian in the early church, was being stoned. A guy called Stephen. They dragged him out of the city and they stoned him. And Paul, or Saul, as he was known then, was just stood there, just giving approval to it. And he was, he, he was very aware of his own sinfulness. He, was a, he, he hated God. He, he hated the church. He, he was looking to persecute the church. That was his mission. And yet God speaks to him. God breaks in. He was very aware at that point that he needed a saviour. And he was transformed from a God-hater to a God-lover. So we read in verse 5, So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. It's so different to him persecuting the church that actually the churches are now strengthened by this guy who was persecuting them. So what does this mean for us? Well, it means we must preach Jesus. We must be a people that preach Jesus. We must be a people that die to ourselves and we preach Jesus. You see, personally for us, our motivation must be God's glory. We must be those that are motivated by God's glory and nothing else. We can't be looking for church attendance. We can't be looking for any sort of victory. We must be about God's glory. So when you're, when you're at work and your, your colleagues mock you or, or something about your faith, and you know, just... What you're a Christian? What you actually believe? The resurrection? Well, I don't know about that. You know, and they kind of they can poke fun and they can have a bit of a, a joke at you. We must. We can't waver. We must persevere in telling them the gospel, at whatever cost. You see, the message is to die to ourselves, die to our own reputation, die to our status, die to our giftings, what God's blessed us with, die to our intellect, um, just so that Jesus can be glorified. Now, it may be that God gives those things back to you, that you can use them for his glory. You might, you might, you might be an academic, um, you might be very clever, but your intellect is a gift of God, and we're to use that for his glory. So what does it look like for Revelation Church? What does it look like corporately for us as a church to be all about God's glory? Well, it means... A, It means radically demonstrating the love, grace, and mercy of God to a dying world. There's a world outside that needs to know Jesus. There's a world that needs to know Jesus, and we've got to tell them. It means that we're a church that prays for the lost. It means that we have compassion for the homeless. It means that we care for the brokenhearted, and we love the unlovely. You see, what does it mean closer to home? Well, actually, what it means is talking to a stranger. It means that when a visitor comes, we, we step out and talk to them all. But, you know, they're a little bit different to me. I don't know if we'll click. We might not, you know, fit off. No, we, we've, got to, we've got to get past that. We've got to welcome the stranger. We've got to invite people in. We've got to be a people that, that when people come and meet us, they meet with Jesus. They're welcomed into a community of believers that love Jesus. A friend of mine came uh, to Revelation Church, and he came, he came bouncing up to me after the service, and he said... I can't believe it. I've, I've had 11 people come and introduce themselves to me. And, and I, my, well, my first response was, I can't believe you're counting. Um, <laughs> but, but after that, I was like, well, 
you know, you're amongst brothers and sisters. Surely you should expect people to be stepping out of their comfort zone to come and introduce themselves. That's what isn't that what we're about? You're amongst brothers and sisters. You see, the problem is that loving, loving your neighbour has become a little bit of a cliché, really, that we just reserve it to Sunday school. It's something we just teach the kids. But the fact is, loving our neighbour is a radical message. It means putting ourselves out of, out of our way. It means, it means dying to ourselves, dying to our reputation, so that, we, so that we prefer one another, so that we put people before ourselves. It's a very radical message, and we often lose the impact of that. You see, it's, it's a shame, isn't it, when you hear of people in a lonely city who come to church and they're still lonely. It's a very sad message when they come to a church and they still feel lonely because they haven't connected with somebody. You see, we've got to be those that step out and meet people. So let's get back to Paul, verses 6 to 8. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia... And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. I've got a map. Um, don't worry. I've got a map. There's a lot of, there's a lot of places in this, um, in this text, and so I thought it would be helpful for us to kind of conceptualise it a little bit. Um, plus, I like maps. So... <laughs> So you see here, Paul, Paul's starting in Lystra and Derba, uh, where the two is. And effectively, he's traveling across Asia to Troas, where the number three is. And he's traveling through this region. And you can see some of those names there from our passage. And he's traveling across, across, uh, across Asia, um, where, where effectively he's been before and he's preached the gospel. And you see, he's, as he's traveling, every time he's forbidden by, by the Holy Spirit to speak the word. Um, now, I've Google mapped this, so um, effectively this is a journey of 466 miles, for those of you that care. Um, it would have taken him about a month to walk that. You see, so this is a month of walking across Asia with no direction, with God constantly saying no, with God saying don't preach there, don't go to that city. Um, so what's going on? Well. Suppose, for instance, I mean, given that, given that Paul's just picked up Timothy uh, in this collection of cities here, and Timothy's coming with him, um, suppose, for instance, that um, may, maybe Steph came in and, and he said, Dave, why don't we, uh, let's go preach the gospel. So, so Dave sat there thinking, oh, okay, all right, let's do it. So Dave says, well, you know, Sunday, let's head to Camden Town. There's always, you know, hundreds of thousands of tourists, if nothing else. Um, you know, let's go there and preach the gospel. So you get there and, uh, you know, you praying in your little huddle or whatever and you're just about to stand up and preach the gospel and all of a sudden Steph's like mm, right. it doesn't feel right there's something not quite is there somewhere else we can go and Dave would be like oh, well yeah maybe well let's go to Euston there's always people travelling home after the weekend let's go to Euston so you get to Euston it's a pretty similar story Steph's kind of mm, I'm just not sure about it it just doesn't feel right you know I just there's something not quite happening so Dave maybe suggests okay well let's Oxford Street let's go to Oxford Street Oxford Street, same story. Get to Leicester Square, same thing. Trafalgar Square, Charing Cross, Victoria, wherever you go, just constantly, no, no, no. You see, and if you were Timothy on that journey, I'd have been pretty, I, you'd be pretty frustrated given that this is, this is an apostle who's preached the gospel in countless cities before, and every time it's like, no, let's, no, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. And it's just kind of, you've got to keep going, you've got to keep going. 
and you'd probably start to question, do you actually want to see anybody saved? Do you actually, are you actually on a mission to, you know, what is this about? Aren't you just running scared? And you see, the reality is that we know that Paul wasn't running scared. You see, pre- in previous chapters, when Paul visited these cities where he's picked up um, Timothy, we know that he was, he was persecuted. He faced fierce opposition. You see, when Paul, when, Paul, when Paul was in Antioch, he was driven out because the Jews hated him. He narrowly escaped being stoned at Iconium, which is another one of these cities. Um, he, he, he was stoned at uh, Lystra. Effectively, if you're, if you're stoned, they drag you outside of the city, and it's like throwing bricks at you. They literally just throw bricks at you until you die. So at Lystra, they stoned him, and they left him for dead. Um, and yet Paul gets up, and in fact, he goes straight back into that city that's just stoned him. Now, if he was running scared, the last thing he was going to do was get up and go back into the city. But you see, he knew his God, and he knew that God was with him. And so whatever, whatever the occasion, he was, he, was, he, was, he was for the gospel. And so we see that some of, some, of these, some of these cities, some of these places, some of these doors that he was trying to push were really hard. They were difficult. There was, he wasn't sure what the opposition was going to be. Would, would it mean stoning? Would it mean imprisonment? Um, what was it going to be? And you see, but you see, at the same time, although it's difficult, when he returns to these cities in chapter 16, there seem to be flourishing churches. They seem to, whatever, what, you know, at a time he may have left just one or two or a handful, you know, that maybe meet in a living room or something. But, but when he returns a couple of years later, they're like flourishing churches, and he's able to um, strengthen them. And so some of, the, some, some of the doors that he pushed were easy. Some of the places he went were easy. Um, he's welcomed back with open arms, as we read in verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. You see, everywhere he's going, Paul's pushing doors. He's wanting to preach the gospel. He's wanting... He's wanting God to break in. And you see, he travels, doesn't he, through Phrygia, Galatia, gets to Mycenae, and he wants to go into Bithynia, but no, every time no, and he ends up in Troas, where he has this vision. So let's just pause there. What does this mean for us as a church to be pushing doors? What does it mean for us as a church to be um, pushing these doors? Well... If you're, if, you, if, if you're sat here, you may be thinking, you know, I'm naturally a pioneer. I, I want the challenge. I want the, I want the energy. I want the drive. Um, and, you know, you, you could be looking for the next thing. And it's easy four years in to think, actually, where's, the, where's God calling me now? Where am I going now? Where am I going to be tomorrow? Where am I going to be next month? God, what's next on the agenda? But you see, the, 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 the trouble is we've got to be a people that actually, you know, we need to pioneer where we are. We need to break new ground for the gospel. We need to push those doors regardless of the outcome for God's glory. God's spoken many promises to us, and we've got to keep pushing the doors until they come to pass. You see, you could, you, you could be pushing these doors and nothing's happening. You're praying for revival in the prayer meetings, but it, it just doesn't seem like you've seen the fulfillment of it. And maybe you've got a glimpse of something and you just want to battle. Um, and I'm sure there are even men, like some of us here, would want to go and church plant. But you see, if you're not going to fight the battles here, if you're not going to pioneer here, then you're not going to fight and you're not going to pioneer when you get out there and ch- plant a church. We've got to be those that fight now, that pioneer now, and advance the kingdom. You see, we need pioneers when we're just 13 people sat in Steph's front room. But we also need pioneers when we're 5,000 with 20 services 
that are pushing doors, that are, that are wanting to see God, God glorified in North Central London. You see, we've got to be those that, that keep pressing doors. We might have seen glimpses. We might have seen answers to prayer. We've seen glimpses of what could happen. But you see, we've got to keep going. We've got to keep pushing doors. We've got to keep pushing until God breaks in. Verse 9. And the vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. You see, when Paul hears the call, he obeys. He's, he's been pushing these doors right the way through Asia, but when he gets to Troas and he has that vision, I love the response, immediately we sought to go. Immediately. There was urgency about it. When God speaks, we must obey. When God speaks, we've got to, we've got to go. We, we've got to go. <laughs> You see, he didn't hang around. He wasn't waiting for confirmation. He wasn't waiting for a secondary word. He heard the word and he went. Would it be easy? Who knows? Was it going to be difficult? Who knows? But God had spoken and so he's got to go, regardless of the outcome, because he wants to bring God glory. And Macedonia was the next on his agenda. That's what God had spoken to him, go to Macedonia. So he went. There's a, there's a great story of a woman named Jackie Pullinger um, who had, a, had an amazing work with drug addicts in Hong Kong. Um, but it didn't start out that way. Um, many years ago, she was, she was, uh, she was from England, um, and she felt God just call her to go. Um, she didn't have a particular place laid on her heart. She didn't know what was going on, but she just felt called to go. So she went to her vicar um, at the time and said, God's calling me to go, but I've got no idea where. And thankfully, uh, that vicar was godly and said to her, well, look, if God's calling you to go, you've got to go. you just got to go. So what he suggested was that she buy a ticket um, on a boat that stopped in the most places around the world and just travel. And, just, and, and when God told her to, she was to get off and start. And you can imagine the call as, as the boat pulled into Hong Kong. She's like, yeah, this is it. This is the fulfillment of promise. This is when God's spoken. I've got to obey. Let's set about it. And, you know, she's seen, she's seen hundreds, if not thousands of people um, set free from the addiction to drugs. She's seen many people come to know Jesus. It's just an amazing, amazing testimony. And all because she went. All because she heard God speak and she went. You see, so we too must obey the call. We've got to be a people that obey the call. What does this mean for us individually? Well, it, it, it's just amazing to hear, of, hear, hear, even just then, of Matt going to Latvia. He's heard the call and immediately he set about it. Does he get there in a day? No, Paul didn't. Paul had to get a boat. Paul had to get, you know, he had to get there, but he set about it immediately. There's something in us. There's an urgency. You hear the call and you go. It's a shame as well. Somebody like Matt is going to be a huge loss to Revelation Church. But you see, we can't hold on to him. And actually, if we're going to grow, if we're going to pioneer, we've got to start saying goodbye to some people. We've got to start saying goodbye to friends that we may not be able to see as much. 
You know, it's easy when you're a church of, you know, 20. Everybody can come round to your house for lunch. But you see, when you're a church of 500, you, you just can't do that. You know, and so there's kind of, we, we're going to have to let people go. We're going to have to say goodbye to some people. Either because they go out and church plant or just because we get too big. And that's the reality. And we've got to get good at saying goodbye and trusting one another uh, that they're still walking with the Lord. And we just love them and send them. So what's your call? What is God calling us to? What is God calling you to? What's God call, what, what doors is God, is God calling you to push? Where are you pushing at the moment? What has God spoken to you? You see, it's easy to get frustrated, isn't it? But we must, hear, we must hear the word and obey. Maybe he's calling you to youth work. Maybe it's to work with the elderly. Maybe it's a certain people group, an estate, maybe a street, maybe even a neighbourhood. What's he calling you to? He's called me here to North London. He's called me here to North London to preach the gospel to the lost, to build the church. When I was in Exeter, God spoke to me before I came to Revelation Church. God spoke to me, um, it, it was, I think it was about February um, before we actually moved. He just gave me a picture of a muscle tearing in order to grow. And I just felt God say that I'm gonna have to, there's going to have to be a tearing from those that I love in my church in Exeter if I'm going to grow. And from that... Uh, you know, I gave Steph a call and I was like, you know, I hear your church planting in London. <laughs> How about it? You know, I came up, met, and to be honest, from that moment I was sold. But, there's, but when God speaks, we've got to act. We've got to, we've got to be impulsive. We've got to respond to what God's saying. You see, now what does this mean for us as a church? For us um, to hear God's call and obey? Well, you see, we've got to be a church that positions ourselves for God's call. You see, if, we, if we've been pushing doors, it's very, it's very tempting for us to then start thinking, you know, or, you know, let's just set up a program for the homeless. Let's just set up this cap centre. It, it can be so easy to just kind of default that and just try and do it in our own strength when actually God hasn't spoken. It can be very natural to kind of just try and, you know, patch something together because you feel like you should be further along. But God hasn't spoken. God hasn't called us to that. You see, it's very dangerous if we get to a point where actually in our structure we're organising out God speaking to us. We're not flexible enough to respond to what God's saying and where he's leading us. It might be that God says, you know, I really want, you know, I just want to burden your heart for prostitutes. I want you to work with the prostitutes. But you see, if if we turn around and say, well, you know, God, we've got this homeless thing going on. It's a little bit tricky, you know. It's kind of... You know, like, we haven't really got time for that. We haven't got the manpower. We can't do this. You know, you're kind of messing with our schedule. We thought, you know, we, we heard you on this, so we're going in this direction. Listen, guys, it's God's schedule. If he's calling us to change, we've got to move. We've got to change. We've got to transform. We've got to, we've got to say, okay, God, it's your schedule. He might have rewritten it, and that's fine. You know, but we've got to respond. We've got to obey where he's leading us. So let's turn to verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. You see, Paul sees fruit, doesn't he? 
He sees fruit. Lydia, Lydia, Lydia becomes a Christian. She's baptised in her whole household. And Paul sees fruit. And later on in this chapter, we see, um, we see a woman uh, who was set free from a spirit of divination. which is Effectively, she could predict the future, but she's set free. And so we see Paul, Paul sees fruit as he goes. You see, verse 13, he's taking a wander outside of the city, and there's a group of women that have gathered um, and uh, preaches the gospel, and Lydia gets saved. But why is it significant to mention Lydia? Um, well, although Luke's particularly factual and he liked the details, I think actually there was something more about it. Um, scholars think that Lydia was, was perhaps quite an influential woman in the city. Um, we read that she, she, she would trade. She was a trader in purple goods. Um, and so maybe she was, you know, maybe she was, she'd done quite well for herself. We even read later in verse 40 that the brothers met in her house. Um, and even the letter to the Philippians later in the Bible is, lit, is written to the church that meets in her house. So she's quite, she's quite an influential woman. She was probably quite a wealthy woman. Um, maybe she's married to a powerful man. Um, but whatever it is, she's quite an influential woman. And we even see that she's obviously quite persuasive because she, because she prevailed upon them. You know, she's like, come to my house, come to my house, come to my house. Like, okay, okay, all right, all right. And so you see Paul, Paul sees fruit, doesn't he? He sees fruit numerically with people becoming Christians, with starting a church, with brothers gathering in Lydia's house, but he also sees fruit spiritually. When this woman later in the chapter was set free of that spirit, he sees, he sees spiritual fruit, um, people being set free. You see, we must be a people that see fruit as well. What do I mean by this? Well, personally, it means we must see our, our, our friends saved. We must. That's the attitude we must have when we go and tell them about Jesus. We must see them saved. Why? Because God deserves the glory from their life. God deserves the glory of transforming them from once being dead to now being alive. He deserves that glory. And we must see fruit spiritually in our personal lives as well. We must walk closer with God. We must walk in step with him. We must be those that, that press into what he's calling us to, that deepen our relationship with him, a greater inf- intimacy. We must be a people that are so filled with the Holy Spirit that he can ask whatever he wants and we'll do it. That when he speaks, we'll obey. When he speaks, we'll go. Corporately, what does it mean for us as a church? We must see fruit numerically. We must. Because God's called us here to North Central London for the lost. We must see fruit in, in, in church plants. We must see fruit in more people coming to know Jesus. You see, we want, to be, we, we want to build a church of people that have come to know Jesus. We don't want people that are just moving from one church to another and church hopping until you know, they feel like, you know, they, 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 you, know, oh, you know, I'm not so happy with this or I disagree with the leadership. Or, you know, I just, and all you're doing is just picking holes. We need to be a people that are on board. That are, that, are, that are pushing forward. We need to be a people. We want to see people saved. We want to see people saved above anything else for God's glory. For God's glory. Not so that we can boast about how big our church is. Not so that we can boast about the, the, the amazing things that God's done. But so that we can be a, a church that brings God's glory. We must be a church that sees fruit spiritually as well. We must be a church that sees people set free. We must be a people that, that, that we must be a people that read God's word, 
hear his voice and obey him. We must be a church that gathers in intimacy when we worship. We must be a church that cultivates the gifts of the Spirit amongst us. We must be a church that presses into what God's doing, that isn't too busy for a prophetic word to change our direction. You see, maturity forgives one another. Maturity bears with one another. Maturity prefers one another. What that means is you put somebody before yourself. You place somebody of higher value than yourself. You effectively, you, you prefer somebody else to yourself. And you so, like Paul did, we must see fruit spiritually and numerically. So, we're on a journey. We're on a journey, guys. It's fantastic. There's still many promises to be fulfilled. There's still many promises that God's still got for us. Building bridges into communities, key figures becoming Christians, gang leaders being like putty in our hands. These are all prophetic words that have been spoken over us as a church. Being given keys to a building, somewhere that we can have training schools. See, the journey is exciting. It's exciting, but we don't know what's coming. And that's, that, you know, that, 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 that's it. It's kind of, it's, it's so exciting. We, we kind of got this big vision of where we're going. And yet kind of the details, when we push those doors, what's the response going to be? Is there going to be opposition? Or is it going to be easy? We don't know. But you see, each of us have our part to play. We've each got to put our shoulder to those doors and push. And one thing that we'll, we need to do in everything is put God first. Because when as a church we put God first, everything else falls in line. Everything else works itself out when we put God first. We need to be those that prioritise God in every circumstance. So maybe like that image uh, that I shared at the beginning, uh, maybe you do feel like a spectator watching this journey just pass before you. Perhaps you're not a Christian and you're, th- and you're thinking, what is, you know, what is this that you're about? Um, well, it's the message of Jesus that he died and rose again. And with that, he rose us again that we can live for him, that we can die to sin and bring him glory. Maybe he's inviting you this morning, if you're not a Christian, to come and know him, to join the journey, join us on the journey as we move forward. The great response, if that's you, is when we take the bread and wine, just come and take it with us to remember Jesus' death on the cross, his body broken and his blood shed for us. That would be a good response. If you do that, then just let somebody know, let myself know, let Dave know, um, just you know, just so that we can help you, we can walk you, we can walk you with, on the journey. We can help you. We can partner with you on this journey. Perhaps you are a Christian here, but you've sidelined yourself. You're still watching that 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 journey pass before you, but you just kind of sidelined yourself, and you're just kind of spectating what's going on. But God's calling you this morning to join the journey, join the battle, push those doors, put your shoulder to the door with us and move forward and see open doors and see God glorified in North Central London. You see, what is the vision of Revelation Church? Maybe you are here this morning and you're on, you're on the mission. Maybe you're here and you, 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 you are. You're, you're on that journey. You're with us. You're partnering. You're, your shoulders, you're pressing into God. You're pushing those doors. You've heard the call. You're obeying. And you're seeing fruit. Well, let me just read to you the vision of, of Revelation Church. The vision 
is to see God's gospel succeed in the lives of 21st century Londoners, whatever their religious, social or ethnic background. To build those Londoners into a Christ-centred community of love and power, where they will be healed and transformed. And then to send these Londoners into their worlds, equipped in the power of the Holy Spirit to bring transformation wherever they go. So let's do it. That's what God's called us to. Let's do it. And let's do it for his glory. Let's do it to lift them up. Why don't you stand? Uh, The band are going to come up and I'm going to pray. And as we sing the next few songs, um, we're going to be taking the bread and the wine. Um, which one? Which? Um, one of one, one one of the one of them's got juice in it. One of them's got wine in it. Um, the small one's got juice in it. The big one's got wine in it. So please take 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 the wine as your conscience will allow. Um, but yeah, so this is a, this is a time of intimacy. So we. We take the bread and the wine to remember Jesus' death, to remember his body broken, his blood shed for us. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You see, so it's a very, it's a very powerful statement that when we remember Jesus' death on the cross, that's what we're remembering. I'm going to pray, um, and then we're going to worship some more. Three songs.